and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this deep dive into prescription drug prices on Wednesday, May 26th. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. Sarah Carlin-Smith, The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. And Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hey, everyone. We're going to switch things up this week and concentrate on a single issue, prescription drug prices. This is the latest in our single topic series. If you've missed them, we've done specials explaining Medicare, Medicaid, and the Affordable Care Act, among other topics. We're going to start this episode with Stacey Dusitzina. She's an associate professor of health policy and the Ingram Associate Professor of Cancer Research at Vanderbilt University and one of my favorite drug price experts. She's going to give us the lay of the land on the issue and then we will come back for our panel discussion. So here's the interview with Stacy, and we will see you on the other side. All right, Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. I am thrilled to be here. So as we have pointed out on the podcast many, many times, prescription drugs do not represent the biggest portion of healthcare spending. Hospital care does, followed by physician services. Yet when the public is asked about health costs or even health issues in general, the price of prescription drugs is always at or near the top of their concerns. Why do prescription drug prices stick out so much? Prescription drugs tend to be something that people use more often than other types of healthcare services. And it's something that you're going to use repeatedly. So if you're taking a chronic disease medication, you're going to fill that every month. The other thing is, is that how our insurance benefits cover prescription drugs can be or feel less generous than how they cover things like a hospitalization, which you know is very expensive but for which once you pay a certain amount out of pocket, then you don't have to worry about the cost as much. So it's kind of this twofold, you're getting more drugs or using more drugs at the population level, and you may be exposed to more costs and more regular costs. So it's just something that people see more. Yeah. You know, often we also think if you're going to have a hospital encounter, that is going to be incredibly expensive. But for most of us, we are grateful that we don't have to go to the hospital very often, or maybe not at all um, in our younger years. So this is definitely something where familiarity breeds contempt. <laughs> I, I may call the, the whole episode that. Um, <laughs> so this week, the House Oversight Committee held a hearing on drug prices, which I will point out was titled Unsustainable Drug Prices Part 3. And Committee Chair Representative Carolyn Maloney said this, quote, drug prices in the United States are simply unfair, unsustainable, and just plain wrong close quote. I have been covering health policy beat in Congress since 1986, and Congress has been trying to do something about drug prices even before that. Why has this problem been so politically difficult to address if everybody, as you point out, is concerned about it? You know, I think everybody is concerned about it because it's something that comes up with constituents. So policymakers are concerned about it because people in their districts are upset about the prices of drugs. But I think it hasn't been until more recently that people have really been exposed to more of these costs. So the price increases and the out-of-pocket costs to patients have become more of a salient issue. 
from policymakers' perspectives, it's complicated to do something meaningful on drug price reform because the pharmaceutical industry has a very powerful lobbying group and they represent some really good things like prescription drug products are things that are highly innovative in some cases. They are used more and more over time to treat people's illnesses, to potentially cure illness. So it's a valuable industry. And it's also one where unlike hospital prices or prices for going to the doctor, the prices for drugs have a short time frame when they are allowed to be high, theoretically. You know, we heard from the hearings that that may actually be dramatically extended, but prescription drugs have patents for the brand name product. And after those patents expire, you can get generic entry. So even though a lot of people are upset about drug prices, there are lots of things about the drug policy space that make it a, a bit hard to intervene. And it's not a one size fits all type of solution. So it makes it really hard for policymakers to address drug prices without creating some additional problems. Now, we also have more middlemen in drugs than we do in other parts. I mean, not that there aren't lots of middle people in the rest of the healthcare system, but in prescription drugs in particular, there are lots of organizations through which drugs pass between the time they are manufactured and the time you pick it up at the pharmacy. Does that add to cost or does it just make it harder to figure out how much they cost or both? Both. So one of the things I always find to be interesting is pharmacy benefits managers have really garnered a very negative perception from the public. So they're pointed at as the middlemen in this drug pricing arrangement who just add cost to the system. Another way of thinking about their role in the current system is that they actually serve as the negotiator for drug prices. So it's a valuable role if you're a health plan or an employer who needs to manage your prescription drug benefit and doesn't want to negotiate for individual drug prices. So in some ways, they reduce costs to the system by doing those drug price negotiations and managing the pharmacy benefit. But there's also this whole lack of transparency about how much money that they keep. So when we think about the costs that they're adding to the system, Part of the concern is like, are they keeping a percentage of the drug price rebates that they're negotiating or are they doing a service and getting paid for that service? I will say that if you look at that, oh, there's often this kind of like spaghetti diagram of all the different entities that are included in these purchasing relationships. The pharmacy makes purchases from wholesalers. The physician's office can be making purchases, the hospital, the PBM, the health plan, and then the drug manufacturers and the patients. And so like all of these transactions are kind of occurring in silos and everybody's trying to make money off of the transaction. So like everyone in the system is wanting to get a piece of that transaction. Pharmacy benefits managers are just one more entity in the system who's trying to get a piece of the pie. So it seems like pretty much every other country that is not called the United States has some sort of price controls for drugs. Uh, and or they also have ways to tie the effectiveness or value of the drug to the price paid. Um, why don't we do what the rest of the world does? That's a very good question. So I remember starting my PhD program in pharmaceutical science and pharmaceutical outcomes research. And the first time I heard this, like that we don't do anything to manage the price or recommend lower cost drugs over higher cost drugs, I was flabbergasted. I was like, 
wait, we don't, what? Like, why wouldn't you do that? Again, it's complicated, but other countries do have kind of a more consolidated single payer type of system. Not everyone, but many countries are dealing with like one budget or a government purchase of prescription drugs. And so they're thinking about how to spend the shared dollars in the most effective way. And to do that, they decide, you know, like, here's a threshold for how much we're willing to pay for new treatments. So you actually need to be better than another treatment, or at least as good as. And then the price is set based on the value you bring. So if you have a really important and helpful drug or a new drug for a condition that had no options and it really works, you get more money for that. In the US, instead, we have a patchwork of coverage. And so we don't really have the leverage with a single payer, individual payer within our system to do those negotiations. So we kind of need to do this on a larger scale. And, you know, like it takes a lot of work and it's not a super popular idea with the industry for sure, because it would mean that we would be spending less on drugs that have lower value of which there are many. <laughs> so I think that politically it's been contentious. The last five years or so, I think we've made massive strides in getting to a place where people are recognizing that having access to everything and not differentiating based on the drug's benefits is not really getting us what we want. Like our health insurance premiums are incredibly high and growing. I think we're starting to recognize that by demanding that we have access to everything, that some people don't have access to anything because they're being asked to pay too much. When I first started covering drug prices, the hope was that more generics, and I first started covering drug prices right after the generic bill was passed in 1984, um, the hope was that generics would bring down the prices of drugs in general, but it hasn't really worked that way. What happened? It has worked really well for some more common diseases. If you looked at things like cardiovascular disease and what we spend on statins, for example, you know, generic entry there has saved us a lot of money because the price of the generics is very, very inexpensive relative to the brand. And a ton of people are taking those drugs. Now, the complicating factor, it's kind of two things. One is for some of the most expensive drugs, we haven't really had prices come down enough to make the treatments inexpensive. The other problem is, is like when we are dealing with more complex disease areas, there is a bit of a push towards newer equals better, even if the evidence doesn't support that. I spent a lot of time working in cancer drug space, which has a lot of expensive drugs and a lot of big push towards using a newer therapy, which often will be more expensive than something that has gone generic, for example. And in some cases we're finding not even really better. It's just, it's newer. There's a marketing campaign behind it. There's a lot of promotion. And if somebody's coming in and telling you how great their drug is relative to this old cheap drug, no one's coming in to tell you about how great the old cheap drug is. So. We've got like a bunch of factors that are kind of prohibiting generic entry from doing its job as efficiently as we would want. Plus, we've got patent shenanigans, if you will. Yes, I saw recently the, uh, you know, I think the hearing yesterday was Humira, uh, but even there was a news item about Enbrel, let's head to head competitor having another eight years of protection. And this can make it very hard to ever get to a point where we're spending less for treating a disease. 
So it's not even just thinking about spending less on a particular drug, but like, will it cost less to treat cancer in the future? Probably not. One of the things that the drug industry says now and has said all along is that if you lower the price on drugs, then we won't have as much innovation. You're jeopardizing the possibility of getting newer drugs for things that we now can't treat, like some forms of cancer and Alzheimer's and other diseases. And that has, in the past, stopped most of these bills in their tracks. Is that even true? So I think there's a kernel of truth. Uh, There is a concern that if you restrict how much we spend on drugs or make it so that there's not this huge potential profit, that some investments might go away. But, you know, this is where thinking about things like how much we pay for drugs that have more value or are more innovative could help us. So we could spend less on drugs that are not very innovative or that don't provide much benefit and spend more money on drugs that provide a lot of benefit so that we steer that innovation into a direction that's like, okay, well, if we lose drugs that would otherwise be developed, let's try to lose the ones that weren't really going to be that beneficial. So I think that it is fair to say that some investment could go away. There could be a hit on some level of drug development and innovation, but the industry is very profitable now and would remain profitable. So we're not talking about taking the drug industry and eliminating all hope of profit. And in fact, even the most aggressive drug pricing reforms are like, we will pay X percent more than other countries. Where these other countries are, you know, getting the drugs and the manufacturers are making a profit, presumably, on most of those sales as well. So what are the the main sort of ideas on the table for addressing drug prices? I guess the, the big one is Medicare negotiation, right? Yes. So Medicare negotiation has been something that's been very popular to say, but not something where we've seen much traction. Part of it's complicated by the fact that in Medicare, at least the Part D program, that there is negotiation going on for drugs in that program. And it's consolidated so much among a few big payers that they're probably getting a pretty good deal. So maybe once you combine forces and negotiate on behalf of all Medicare beneficiaries, you could do a little better. But in general, I'm not sure that that would necessarily on its own change the situation for very expensive drugs. The biggest proposal on the table right now, or the one that's gotten a lot of interest, is HR3, which moved through the House uh, in 2019. And that one actually would be a substantial reform because it's indexing our prices off of other countries' prices and paying, you know, 20% more than a set of other countries with similar economies. The price that they negotiate there would also apply to the commercial market or be available to the commercial market. So when we're talking about like a big change from the status quo, that would be a very big change. Others have done kind of more modest changes like limiting price increases in the Medicare Part D program. And this is something that has been very Uh, effective in the Medicaid program for spending less on drugs because price increases are pretty substantial. But, you know, it's it's very much like whack-a-mole. If you figure out some way to save money, the industry is going to figure out some way to get that money back. So one of the big concerns that comes up when you talk about doing partial reforms like 
inflationary rebates are, well, why wouldn't the companies just set their initial price much higher then to account for the fact they can't raise their price? So you kind of have to do these things with an eye towards if you really want to achieve savings, how would you respond if you were a profit motivated industry to keep your money <laughs> and, and then try to fix all of those things at one time? And that's sort of what's behind a lot of this abusive preventing generic competition, right? There's all these these ways they've they've managed to, to get around their patent expirations. And Congress has been trying to address that. And even that, which seems to be not that hard, has proven to be politically difficult. Yes, it's unbelievable some of the gaming that you can see. So like if you just followed the history of a drug that's really expensive and you look at all of the different things that are coming into play to maintain profits and market share, it's a lot. And it's pretty fascinating. I always I sort of feel like this is the investigative journalism type of piece of the things that I love in in this is like, oh, okay. I can see where your product, you're trying to push market share, or you've pulled your drug off the market when you launched slightly different updated version of it. So everybody switches, you have a product hop, and now everybody uses your new product. So then no one is taking the brand that has the generic coming into the market. So you can't just switch people over. It's fascinating, but also disturbing when you're a person who would like to see maybe spending come down a bit. <laughs> are, are you at all optimistic that is there a breaking point here where drug companies just aren't going to be able to continue to do this? I am optimistic for a couple of things. So one is thinking about reform that is aimed at modifying what patients pay. So a couple of uh, proposals have focused on modifying the Medicare Part D benefit to make drugs more affordable for Medicare beneficiaries. And the biggest component of that that I think is patient and consumer friendly is capping out-of-pocket spending on the Part D benefit. Uh, you know, I think when the House and the Senate had drug pricing bills in 2019, the details of how they were thinking about redesigning the Medicare Part D program were shockingly similar. So it's like, oh, this needs to happen. There are many problems within that benefit that based on the way they're thinking about reforming, it could help consumers, but could also put more pressure on drug companies and plans to manage the drug spending in a way that hopefully reduces spending. So yeah, I, I can tell you when it passed in 2003, and they decided that after you get the catastrophic threshold, you'd have to pay 5% of the rest of your drug costs for the rest of the year, it did not occur to lawmakers that 5% of a really expensive drug could be 1000s and 1000s of dollars. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the reality of drug prices, and how many Many complex drugs are offered on Medicare Part D, you know, whereas previously they were offered under the medical benefit and had many more cost protections for patients. Like the reality of that is people can't afford to take their very expensive drugs. And so we end up with Medicare beneficiaries who are just priced out with no real options. And then the lack of a cap is just we we have a cap on out-of-pocket spending for everybody else in other health insurance plans. It just doesn't include Medicare beneficiaries Part D spending. It actually doesn't include A and B either. But. Right. Not on traditional, but on Medicare Advantage, you can get an out-of-pocket limit, but gets A and B only, which, you know, it's like, well, that's very helpful unless you need an orally administered drug covered by Part D, and then it's not so helpful. 
So I guess if I'm optimistic about anything, it's those parts of reform could move forward. I think the inflation rebates could also potentially move forward, but it would be really great to see some meaningful price reform and some that also tries to loop in those individuals in the private market because their costs are also very high. Well, we will see, and we will definitely be back in touch. Stacey Dusitzina, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, we are back with our panel for this week, Sarah Carlin-Smith, Anna Edney, and Joanne Kennan. So Stacy laid out a couple of the proposals on the legislative agenda, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices and doing something about very high out-of-pocket cost in Medicare's outpatient drug program, Part D. What are some of the other ideas that are floating around Capitol Hill that could help bring down drug prices? So one of the more slightly bipartisan ideas, at least among some people, is capping the amount drug companies can raise their prices year over year. So having what some people call inflation penalties. Um, The question with these proposals is, does it just cause companies to kind of set their prices higher at launch rather than necessarily to lower prices overall? Another popular idea is to tweak Medicare Part D to at least make it more affordable for some patients. So capping out-of-pocket costs in that program is pretty popular. One of the ones that I've sort of found interesting that maybe doesn't still get talked about a ton, but I think there's bipartisan interest in it. And I think there's still interest to do something on it. Um, It is in one of the bills. And this is to eliminate something called spread pricing. And one of my Bloomberg colleagues, Bob Langreth, has done a lot of work on that. I looked back at one of his old stories and these middlemen, um, which are called pharmacy benefit managers, they tell a payer, so say it's Medicaid or say it's um, a state or a county or an insurance company, this is, you know, how much we're charging you for a drug. And so they'll, you know, in this one case that my colleague looked at, they, they charged CVS 198 some dollars for a drug and then they reimbursed the pharmacy that was dispensing the drug less than six dollars so you know this middleman was keeping the spread and what do they do with it you know that billions of millions of dollars you know that all these places are paying for no one's sure exactly what the lining the pockets of the middlemen they're supposed to be saving money so i was saying i mean in theory the pharmacy benefit managers are negotiating better prices that's what they were created to do right yeah, exactly. But in their their system, they set up these rebates and who keeps all of what? It's just it's really confusing and very hard to follow and figure out. And it is a place that the drug makers have pointed to as the problem, which I don't want this to look like I'm saying that's the problem because drug makers have their own issues as well and and the price of drugs could come down but I just think it's kind of uh, an interesting little corner of the drug pricing debate. There's been all this legislation I know over the years that Congress has tried to pass and I guess they've passed one or two of them to try to you know stop the gaming of brand name drug companies to prevent generics from getting on the market um, to, to preserve profits. I, I assume there's still more more fruit to be picked off of that vine too, right? And that's a very popular concept on the Republican side of the aisle because it's sort of all about increasing competition and sort of eliminating any kind of manipulation of the market. The problem at this point is a lot of those solutions would kind of like tinker around the edges and might lead to some savings. But what's happened 
particularly um, in the U.S. drug marketplaces, actually, we have pretty robust generic competition for small molecule drugs, but a lot of the newer, costlier drugs are biologic medicines. And while the Affordable Care Act did have this biosimilar pathway to make sort of copycats, almost equivalent to generics of those products for patent and other reasons, pricing reasons, formulary reasons, doctor trusted these medicines. They just There just hasn't been a lot of uptake. So it's going to be a lot harder, I think, for those sorts of competition mechanisms to make a difference. That's not really where we're seeing like the big costs to our system right now. What about things like, I know there's been a lot of talk about reference prices, about sort of attaching somehow to price controlled prices in other countries, because it seems like every other country, so I've had except s- the United States, has price controls for, for, for prescription drugs. I thought Stacy made a good point in her interview, and she was describing HR3, which is the um, House Democrats' big drug pricing bill, because a lot of people have been talking about that as a Medicare negotiation bill. And in many ways, I think it really is more of a international price index bill where we reference other countries' prices. Because while in theory, it gives the government power to negotiate, it then sort of sets this bar, which would be based on reference pricing. And I think most people's assumption is it's really just going to, that's going to be the price, that reference price. I think that idea has become sort of popular with Democrats, and Trump actually also took some interest in it, and it would certainly bring U.S. prices down. I think I've talked to some people who feel like, though, we're sort of like abdicating our power as the U.S. then to sort of really think about like what makes sense for us to pay, and we're just sort of relying on these countries um, to make the best decisions. And the drug companies completely freaked out at this, right? I mean, this would be, I imagine this would be their worst nightmare of all. Yeah. When Trump talked about this, I, I think he held a big press conference um, to talk about how he was going to finally lower drug prices because he had promised it on the campaign trail and all of that. And this was his main solution. And the drug makers said that Americans would not have access to the best and the newest drugs the same way we're used to which Stacy also touched on as well. Maybe that's changing. Maybe there's a realization that, you know, affordability versus the newest thing is, is a conversation that needs to be had. Um, but certainly the pharmaceutical industry lobby came out swinging. And as they usually do, I think it had said that research and development on these drugs just wouldn't be able to continue the same way if we weren't the ones footing the bill, because clearly if everyone else can pay these prices, then were considered the the piggy bank for that. So obviously the drug industry is pretty politically powerful right now um, because among other things, successful COVID vaccines, notwithstanding those were mostly paid for by the federal government. Yet, uh, as I mentioned at the top, drug prices are the health issue that seems to resonate most with the public, including Republicans and Democrats. Who prevails when this uh, immovable object meets this unstoppable force? Democrats and Republicans don't agree on anything in healthcare. And it's been about five or six years now that this is not just an agreement, but a top issue in many polls, the top issue. I think the first time I saw that was back in April of 2015. I may be off a little bit, but it's not new. So on one hand, you'd say, oh, my goodness, Democrats and Republicans are agreement on this. We better do something. On the other hand, it has been five or six years and not much has been done. So it just it becomes a little bit background noise rather than a priority. And if you think about all the other problems in the country right now, you know, President Biden's proposed budget is going to come out. We're taping on Wednesday this week, and the budget is going to come out on Friday, just in time to ruin everybody's last hours before Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, we, we think there'll be something in there vaguely about drug pricing and 
but we don't think that we're, there's really going to be a robust detail. I mean, and somebody else may have heard something today that I was not writing about this today. Something may have developed that I'm unaware of. But, you know, I think we're going to see sort of placeholder vagueish language. And it doesn't mean that nothing is going to happen. I do still think there's imperative to do something bipartisan. I mean, because they are at each other's throats on everything. Um, and to take home that achievement. But I also don't think... I don't think there's just a lot of oxygen right now. I mean, there's the infrastructure battle. There's getting out of the pandemic. There's you know questions about China. There's a, a million competing demands. And I think this has become something that politicians have to check the box, but they're sort of checking it in an invisible ink. I don't think zero happens, but, but I don't think at the end of the day, we're going to see you know revolutionary change. It just seems odd that something that is so popular and that so many Republicans and Democrats say is a top priority um, just keeps not getting done. I've been, as I mentioned, I've been covering this since the late 1980s. This has been an issue and Congress has done practically nothing. I mean, little tiny things. And even those, you know, they had to move mountains to get done. And as Anna and Sarah just said, you know, it's a different landscape, too. I mean, we, we are in an era of, you know, new, complicated biologics. And some of them are have a tremendous potential. And, and some of them, frankly, you know, give you six extra weeks of life as a cancer patient. They're, you know, press releases about prolonged survival, and it's just a lot of money for a few weeks. Um, but those are sort of first-generation drugs. And, you know, once you get the first generation of a drug that's not great, you, you, we probably will have better ones in a few years. The COVID vaccines, there's some incredible science going on. What used to be an expensive drug is like chump change compared to what now is an expensive drug. I mean, there, you know, CAR-T is, which isn't strictly a drug, it's a drug in a process, but it's a million dollars a person. As the congressional inaction becomes more of background noise, the price of drugs, um, and, you know, averages is, is sort of meaningless because Trump always cited an index that didn't mean much. Well, I think that um, it's been an issue for so long and it's become so popular with the public to talk about lowering drug prices that each party wants to own it. And that's become a problem too. We saw that a little bit last time around when suddenly these bipartisan deals just sort of fell apart because Trump would have won that victory, right? Republicans would have owned whatever happened. And I think that there's a lot of nuance to that. I mean, Republicans and Democrats don't necessarily agree on the same ways to do everything. And there's, there's still a lot of negotiating to do, but it's really tough when you have slim majorities or when you've got a House led by one party and a Senate by another, which was last time around, that everybody wants credit. They don't want um, the party, you know, necessarily that they're not in to, to get any credit for it. In other words, they would rather do nothing than get let the other party get credit. They want to get reelected. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, the definition of Washington now, right? Is, yeah, it's, yeah, that's you know, true. Every, yeah, it's blame game on everything. I was going to say the polling is a little bit more complicated, too, than just that everybody is concerned about prescription drug pricing and wants action. Because sometimes, um, like when you ask people whether they um, want the government to negotiate drug pricing in Medicare, they're often very enthusiastic. If you caveat that with the fact that it might have to be paired with some kind of restriction on medication access, which, you know, we should add that other countries that do get better deals on drug pricing do tend to have a bit tighter control what products are available, then people get more nervous and it doesn't have such high support. The other thing is I've seen um, polling in the past too, where like people are concerned about the high prices of drugs, but then when you ask them like if they personally are having affordability issues, they don't. And it often is like an actually a very small 
narrow proportion of patients that are really bearing the incredible brunt of those high prices. Because again, the U.S. does have really great generic penetration. It's like it's people with a fraction of diseases and conditions and on a fraction of therapies that are most impacted by this. But it's also changed as the disease profile in the United States and much of the world has changed over the last several decades. People used to die younger and have acute episodes and acute illnesses. We now live longer, which is good, but we end up having multiple chronic diseases. So people are not just, you know, going to the drugstore, their mail order or their doctor and getting, you know, one big expensive drug and then you're done. It's every day, year after year after year. So as Sarah said, there's, it's not everybody, but for the people who are taking some of these drugs um, for it to control chronic diseases like Crohn's and, and some of the diabetic diabetes drugs have gotten very expensive as well. If you think about oh, can I afford this thing this week and get over this disease? I mean, hepatitis drugs, Savaldi and the other ones that came after it are a cure. Um, and in retrospect, you know, we all were like, oh my God, you know, $84,000. That seems like nothing now. And that was a cure. You took that for, I think it was 12 weeks. And maybe there's a version that's eight now and you're done. You're cured. It's really an amazing drug. But, you know, some of these things is, you know, I, 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 I met a doctor who I didn't think was all that, politically engaged or necessarily very liberal. But when he found out as a health journalist, he just went on this like tirade about his Crohn's patients who were never going to be, you know, disease that young people get. And he's screaming, they're never going to be able to buy a house. <laughs> like it was my fault. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, I think for those people, this is really urgent. So obviously, you know, Washington is kind of stuck, as we've all pointed out. Um, are there things that the states can do? I mean, the states can't do anything about patent law and, you know, make it easier to get generics. But there seem to be a lot of states that, given the fact that Washington is stuck, they're trying to do things. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of state action over the past um, few years, and it comes from all sides. So the drug industry has pushed a lot of laws targeting the PBMs, the middlemen Anna talked about. So um, sometimes those bills may have an impact on what patients pay, but they don't necessarily tackle the underlying costs of the drugs. Other states, um, a handful of states, New York, Colorado, have looked into like creating these like drug affordability boards, where at least for a small fraction of medicines, they would try to better control the prices. A few states have been working with the federal government to try to enact drug importation policies to import cheaper drugs from Canada. Again, there's a lot of policy questions about whether how well that would really work in practice in terms of the money it would save um, industries. And can we just point out, which I point out every time this comes up, that Canada doesn't have enough drugs to supply the United States? Right. Canada is a very small, um, (laughs) geographically, obviously, huge country, population-wise, fraction of the U.S. So a lot of the things the states are working on, I think, again, may have some impact around the edges. The drug industry certainly goes crazy and files lawsuits against all of them. They always find a hook to try and at least stall them, if not stop them. I think the question becomes sometimes people say like the states are the laboratories of democracy in the U.S. Like can all the states put enough pressure on the federal government to act? Particularly sometimes you see in the U.S. if a big state like California or New York takes action and it just becomes so frustrating for an industry to have to deal with, you know, different sets of laws in each state. Sometimes that motivates Congress to move, not in drug pricing, but I know like in drug supply chain regulations, that was actually one of the reasons why um, we got a big supply chain law um, a number of years ago in the U.S. So I think that's a possibility, too, that the states are, even if they can't quite successfully control pricing as much as they would want, they 
they also help push Congress into action. Okay, uh, yes or no question for each of you. Um, Are we going to have to do this explainer again in two years because nothing has changed? Sarah? Um... Gosh, I wish I could be more um, optimistic, but I've been in D.C. too long. But I feel like there's a reasonable chance that we'd be do- we'll be doing this again. I'm not saying nothing will change, but not a lot will change. Anna? We'll be doing this again. <laughs> Joanne? It won't be identical, but it will not be a resolved problem. I, 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 you know, there may be Band-Aids, but not major surgery. Well, we will be here to chronicle all of it. Thank you all very much, panel. That is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Sarah? I'm at Sarah Carlin. Anna? At Anna Edney. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.